Uh, If you would turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. If you're looking in one of the Pew Bibles, it's page number 65. We are looking at just a few verses today. We're in the middle of this long story of how God led the Israelites from bondage in Egypt to belonging to him as their Savior and Lord. So we've been walking through this wonderful book, and we are here about a third of the way through, and we're sort of at a turning point in the book after the people have uh, just begun to leave Egypt and are beginning their trek through the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, uh, where God will, will speak to them and give him his instructions there. So we're looking at Exodus chapter 13, beginning at verse 17 uh, through to the end of the chapter. Exodus 13, beginning at verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, giving us your word, for preserving it for us and those who translated it into our language so that we can more easily understand it. And we pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to receive what you have for us Uh, to grow in understanding it and receiving it and taking it to heart and walking by it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wonder, when did you last find yourself in a situation that you didn't choose, you didn't anticipate, you don't like it, and you don't understand why you have to go through it? I suspect that for most of us, I see multiple people going, oh, yeah, that sounds like me. I'm not, that often life doesn't go the way we expect and hope that it would. Isn't that right? Uh, uh, I suspect that for most of us, the answer to my first question is not too long ago, right? So how do we deal with the unexpected twists and turns and jolts in the road? Uh, Sometimes after experiencing a number of such things, people despair and give up hope. And they conclude that life is just random and meaningless. And Shakespeare's play Macbeth, after Macbeth receives the news uh, of his wife's death, he says this, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets its hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Some people come to that conclusion. Life is just random and meaningless. It'll just end, no purpose. Now for those of us who have been Christians for some time, we might not go that far 
But still we might have questions. Why has my life taken such a strange and torturous path? How do I trust that God has a good purpose, even if it doesn't seem to make sense? Some Christians don't lose their faith entirely, but they get stuck in a place of cynicism and resentment and disengagement. Well, this morning's passage is about how God led the people of Israel on a path that they didn't expect. Three times we see the word lead in this passage. Verse 17, God did not lead them by the way they might have expected, by way of the land of the Philistines, verse 18, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness. And then verse 21, the Lord went before them in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. So that's the emphasis is this passage is all about how God leads the people whom he has delivered. God doesn't just leave us to find our own way. He doesn't just let all kinds of random things happen for no purpose at all, but he leads us intentionally when we have come uh, to know him and when he has, come, when he has uh, reached into our lives to save us. So I want to focus on three points. God leads his people in often unexpected ways. Number one, God leads us on unexpected detours. That's the first point, verse 17 and 18. Second point, God leads us with unexpected faithfulness, verse 19. And third, God leads us with his unexpected presence in verses 20 through 22. So first, God leads us on unexpected detours. Uh, the passage begins, when Pharaoh let the people go, that's been the first 12 chapters, right? The people of Israel uh, were distressed and oppressed and in bondage in Egypt, and the first 12 chapters have been the story of God intervening, and then Pharaoh digging in his heels and resisting, and God finally overcoming Pharaoh and leading his people out toward freedom. Uh, so we've turned sort of a major corner in the story, and chapters 13 through 18 focus on Israel's journey through the wilderness. Uh, and chapter 19, they come to Mount Sinai, where they camp for the rest of the book. Um, now, think about it this way. If you and your ancestors, like the Israelites, had been enslaved and oppressed for multiple generations in a certain country, and for the first time ever... You had the opportunity to escape and to bring your whole family with you and go to a new land that God had promised would be your very own, you'd probably be inclined to take the fastest route possible out of there. Make a beeline toward your future destination. Get there right away. And there was a straight line highway that went from Egypt to Canaan, the promised land, the land where God said they would end up and settle and have as their own. It was a well-traveled road. It went north to the Mediterranean Sea, and then it went right along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, right into the middle of uh, what's now the, uh, the land of Israel. In the ancient world, you could travel from uh, the, sort of the, the populated part of, most populated part of Egypt to the center of Canaan in about two weeks. Didn't have to be a very long journey. You could go straight there, and yet it says, God didn't lead them that way. Instead, he leads them on a roundabout route through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Now, if you look on a map today, the Red Sea is a large body of water that separates the continent of Africa from Saudi Arabia. And so what's labeled as the Red Sea on our maps is sort of a very, very wide 
body of water down just toward the south, but it connects to the, what's called the Gulf of Suez. And then above the Gulf of Suez, if you look on a map, there's a bunch of freshwater lakes that are all along the eastern border of Egypt. And in the ancient world, all of that was considered the Red Sea. It wasn't sort of, the, the, the phrase Red Sea could refer to any part of that. Uh, so, you know, different scholars have different guesses about where exactly Israel crossed the Red Sea. I'm not sure we'll be able to pinpoint that location with 100% precision and confidence, but um, uh, the uh, location markers we have in the book of Exodus are in chapter 12, verse 37. It says the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses, one of the cities in Egypt that they had been uh, building, to Sukkoth. And then in chapter 13, verse 20, it says they moved on from Sukkoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. In other words, uh, Etham was sort of the end of Egyptian civilization heading into no man's land. Uh, but then, if you look ahead at chapter 14, verse 2, the next thing God says is, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of some other places. And those other places are mostly probably very smaller, smaller villages that we're not even sure exactly where they were uh, for the most part. So the point is, God didn't lead the Israelites on the straight line direct route to Canaan. He, for, he led them in a different direction, and then he led them to change their direction. You might think, that is not what we would expect when they're trying to get out of Egypt as fast as they can. In fact, chapter 14, verse 3 says, Pharaoh looked at them and thought, they're lost. They're wandering in the desert. They don't know where they're going. And so Pharaoh runs after them. That's the next chapter. Next chapter is a very exciting chapter. But here's the point. Why would God lead his people on such a roundabout path? Now, often God doesn't tell us the reasons behind his choices, but here the author tells us one of God's reasons, right? In verse 17, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So along the direct road from, e from Egypt to Canaan, the Egyptians had built a number of fortified settlements. Uh, that, um, so if the Israelites passed that way, they could have been attacked by Egyptians at any time. Verse 17 also mentions the Philistines. Uh, now we don't have a lot of precise historical data about the Philistines at the time of the Exodus, but if you know your Old Testament, think about the references to the Philistines. They're attacking the Israelites when they enter the Promised Land, during the period of the judges, Samson has to save them from the Philistines, but then they come back again. Goliath was a Philistine who David fought. So the Philistines were sort of constantly attacking and causing trouble for Israel. And they were also causing trouble for other people. In fact, we have an Egyptian inscription uh, that describes the Philistines attacking Egypt. Now, most people didn't attack Egypt because Egypt was sort of uh, the big guy on the block, uh, one of the regional superpowers. Uh, but an Egyptian inscription said of the Philistines, no land could stand before their arms, right? And the Egyptians usually didn't like to give credit to many other nations' armies. So that means the Philistines were an imposing force. So here's the point. God knew the Israelites weren't ready to face the Philistine army. They weren't ready to face an enemy attack just a couple of days after leaving the land where they had been slaves for years. They would just turn tail and run back. Now, interestingly, in the next chapter, 
the Israelites would find themselves in a different kind of pickle, caught between Pharaoh's army and a big body of water, the Red Sea, facing a challenge that was far bigger than what they could have imagined. But God had a purpose in that too. Chapter 14, verse 4, gives us another indication of God's purpose where God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and all his armies, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So what do we learn from God leading his people on a roundabout path, on a detour that they wouldn't have expected? Well, I think the main thing we learn about God is that God knows us better than we know ourselves. Sometimes God knows that we would be defeated or we would just turn tail and run if we faced a certain kind of challenge or temptation or attack and God mercifully spares us from it as he did with the Israelites here. He said, no, don't go that way. Because I can see what would happen and that's not going to turn out well. But at other times, we think there's no way we could endure a certain challenge or a certain attack and God leads us straight into that like he did with the Israelites in the next chapter. God says, I'm going to lead you straight into the circumstance that you most dread in order to show you that my grace is going to be enough for you to pull you through. Psalm chapter 50, verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Sometimes God leads us into situations where we're in trouble, and we have to call upon God to deliver us. And when he does help us and deliver us, we give him the glory. And that's the point. That's what God was doing, chapter 14, verse 4, right here. And that's what God sometimes does in our own lives. So God leads us, as he did with the Israelites, often on unexpected paths, unexpected detours. Uh, before we move on to the next point, I want to briefly address a sort of side issue that's related to this passage uh, verse 18, you might read verse 18, and it says, The people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. And if you look back at chapter 12, verse 37, it says there were 600,000 uh, men on foot, which refers to foot soldiers. So you might think, wait a minute, why would 600,000 foot soldiers equipped for battle not be ready to face the Philistine army? Uh, well, two things. First, uh, the word that's translated in the ESV, equipped for battle, is a hard word to translate. So sometimes it refers to being in military formation. Sometimes it just has a more general meaning of being well organized uh, or traveling in an orderly fashion, in orderly ranks. Uh, the reality is few, if any, Israelites would have received military training in Egypt, right? The Egyptians had no interest in uh, giving the Israelites, who they were trying to enslave and oppress, training in fighting, right? So we have to assume that most of the Israelites didn't know anything about war and weapons. Um, that wasn't their background. Uh, possibly when the Israelites plundered the Egyptians when they asked their neighbors for gold and silver uh, and, and jewelry and clothing, perhaps some of the Egyptians gave them some things they could use as weapons, uh, but it doesn't say that. Um, and so even if they had some weapons, even if they were organized into military units, they certainly weren't well-trained or well-prepared. So when it says equipped for battle, we shouldn't get the idea that they were a well-trained, well-equipped army. It was more likely just saying they were traveling in an orderly fashion, uh, perhaps uh, sort of trying to begin some organized uh, uh, training. 
Uh, the other thing uh, is that the word translated thousand in chapter 12, verse 37 is also a Hebrew term that is difficult to translate. So sometimes it means literally a thousand persons or a thousand things, uh, but sometimes it is translated clan, division, group, herd or flock of animals or military unit. Uh, so sometimes it basically just means a large group or an organized group, uh, and it doesn't refer to a specific size or number. Uh, so we should ask, you know, when a word has more than one possible meaning, which meaning makes most sense here? Uh, if there were literally 600,000 men of fighting age, plus women and children, that would make approximately 2 million Israelite persons in total. Uh, the main problem that I find uh, with that idea is that in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verse 7, God says to Israel, I didn't choose you because you were bigger or stronger than other nations. In fact, he says, I chose you because you were the fewest of all peoples. Uh, sort of like the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He didn't choose us because we were the best and the brightest and the strongest and the bravest. He chose us just because he loves us and he wants to show his glory and mercy in and through us. Uh, now, if there were uh, two million Israelites, they most likely far outnumbered every other nation living in Canaan at the time. Uh, in fact, historians estimate, now there's a lot of estimating, that the total, total population of Egypt was about two to four million people at this time. And the Egyptian army numbered perhaps 20,000 soldiers. Now, it's just an estimate. It includes a lot of guesswork. The historians could be wrong. I was a history major in college. I'll freely say it, right? The historians aren't always right. But the Bible consistently portrays Israel as a smaller and weaker nation surrounded by larger and stronger nations like Egypt and Babylon and Assyria, um, rather than as sort of the biggest and naturally strongest of them all. So in my mind, those factors indicate that thousand here uh, doesn't necessarily mean what we think of as, you know, 900, one more than 999. It just refers to 600 groupings, military units. We might call them squads. Uh, so if there were 600 squads of foot soldiers, that also makes sense with the next word, men on foot, referring to uh, foot soldiers. Uh, if there were 600 squads with perhaps a dozen men in each squad, that would make something like 20 or 30,000 Israelites. Now that's still a substantial group, right? To take 30,000 people through the wilderness, God has to miraculously provide for you. So that doesn't diminish any of the miraculous dimensions of the story. But it's also a small enough group that you can imagine all of the heads of families gathering and being able to listen to Moses, right? Back in the day, even without a sound system, uh, people could speak loudly, and often you'd have sort of someone transmitting, you know, someone says something and then someone transmits it in a few different directions. They found ways of speaking to large groups of people, uh, you know, five to 10,000 people, um, you could imagine everyone gathering and being able to hear Moses speak. Um, and they're also small enough that when they looked at these larger nations with bigger armies, they would have naturally felt intimidated. So for those reasons, that's how I tend to interpret this verse. You might think differently. Many people think differently. And uh, I'm just explaining my own view. This is not something that we all have to see exactly the same way. But this, you know, in light of all the things the Bible says, uh, that's what seems most plausible to me. Uh, but that's sort of our side issue. And back to the main point, uh, God leads us on unexpected detours. That's the first point. Second point, God leads us with unexpected 
faithfulness. Verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Now, this might seem like a rather odd detail to include. But why is it included? It's included because it's a reminder that God leads his people with unexpected faithfulness. Uh, now, if you know the story of Joseph, Joseph was the one who had led the family of Israel down to Egypt in the first place. His story is found at the end of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 37 through 50. Joseph was one of 12 brothers, the sons of Israel. He had grown up with his family in Canaan, in the promised land, but his life took some unexpected detours. So first, his brothers got jealous of him. They turned on him and sold him into slavery, and some slave traders took him down to Egypt. That was the first unexpected detour that his life took. Then his life seemed to get a little better. He was promoted. Uh, but then another unexpected detour. He gets falsely accused by his boss's wife, and his boss throws him in prison. In prison, things start looking up a little bit, and in fact, he gets a lead because one, you know, he helps out one guy, and then this guy has a connection, and this guy says, I'll help you out. And this guy gets released from prison, and then guess what? Totally forgets him. And Joseph is sitting down there in a dungeon for two more years. Finally, God raised up Joseph, not only to be second in command to Pharaoh and save Egypt from a famine, but also to provide for his family who end up coming down to Egypt and buying grain from him. And through a long process, Joseph leads his brothers to repentance, to facing up to what they had done, and then to forgiveness and reconciliation. It's a long story. It's a great story. But here's how it ends. The end of Genesis chapter 50. First, Joseph tells his brothers that despite their evil intentions, despite all the twists and turns that his life took, at first, because of their malice, God has been faithful to accomplish his good purposes during their lifetime. Joseph says, Genesis 50, verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph ended up saving the whole nation of Egypt from famine and many other people as well and his family as well. So despite all the detours that Joseph's life took, God was still faithful and to him and his brothers through their whole lives. But then Joseph also expressed his confidence that God would still be faithful to future generations. So the last few verses of Genesis, Genesis 50, verse 24 and following, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. You see, God had promised to Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather, that his descendants would one day dwell in the land of Canaan and have it for their own. And yet, God had led Joseph and now the whole family of Israel down to Egypt on a detour. And at the end of Joseph's life, they were still on that detour. And Joseph said to his brothers, but I trust that God hasn't forgotten us. And he's going to bring us back to where he said we would be planted. It just won't happen in my lifetime. But when it happens, bring my bones up, because that's where I belong. 
And when you bring my bones up, it will be a reminder that God has been faithful to his promises. You see, Joseph's last request was an act of faith in God's promise. Hebrews 11.22 says, By faith, that is by trusting God's promises for the future, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. So verse 19 is just a reminder God didn't forget his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And now God's making good on it by leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. So Joseph's faith wasn't in vain. See, God may lead us on all sorts of roundabout paths. Sometimes those paths happen as they did for Joseph because other people in ways that, we, that are beyond our control do nasty things to us that have consequences. And yet, what someone may intend for evil, God can intend for good. And God can work out his good purposes even through other people's evil intentions as we see in the story of Joseph. Think of all that Joseph experienced. It wasn't an easy life. His brothers hated and betrayed him. He was separated from his whole family for decades. He was framed for a crime that he didn't commit. He was forgotten by people that he had helped out, and yet God worked out his good purposes even through all those horrible things. It doesn't make those, any of those things less evil or horrible, but it simply means that the other people's evil intent did not get the last word. God's good purposes get the last word. God may lead us on all kinds of detours, but God always remains faithful to his word. So that's the second thing we see. God leads us on unexpected detours. God leads us with unexpected faithfulness. And three, and finally, God leads us with his unexpected presence. Verse 21 and 22. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud, and by night in a pillar of fire. What did the pillar of cloud and fire represent? Well, it represented God's guidance because it went ahead of them. God was going before them at every step of the way. He was leading them along the way even though it wasn't the way they expected. It also represented God's comfort during the hot sunny days, looking at a cloud or perhaps even being in the shade of a cloud would have been a relief. And during the cold desert nights, dark nights, the fire would have provided light and perhaps warmth. So it represented God's guidance, God's comfort, and also God's protection. Uh, we'll see that especially next week in chapter 14. And this was a completely new experience for the Israelites to see a visible sign in front of them of God's guidance and comfort and protection. They hadn't experienced that when they were in Egypt. Read the first 12 chapters. They don't experience that. There's no cloud. There's no fire. The only person who sees God's presence in a fire was Moses when he was in the land of Midian. But God is saying, what I first revealed to Moses in the burning bush, now I'm going to reveal to all of you. You see, God's purpose throughout the Bible is that all of his people would know his presence, would know what it means for God to be close to them. God didn't just want to be close to Moses. God doesn't just want to be close to a couple of Christians or just some really elite 
spiritual people, God wants every believer in Jesus to know his presence. And in the New Testament, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to his disciples. Um, when Jesus Christ was getting ready to go to the cross, he said his, to his disciples, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter. That word can also be translated an advocate, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. So Jesus promises to his disciples, to all who believe in him, that his Holy Spirit will accompany us. Just as the pillar of cloud and fire accompanied the people of Israel throughout all their journeys through the wilderness, it never left them. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will never leave you. When you come to me and trust in me, I will send you my Holy Spirit. And it will never leave you. He will never leave you. You see, why did God give the Israelites a, a physical, visible sign of his presence among them? Because they needed constant reassurance that he was with them. They were just beginning their journey with God. You know, in many respects, the Israelites were just beginning to know God for the first time in their lives. They were also emerging from a traumatic past. I mean, think about what they've experienced in Egypt. They've been enslaved and oppressed, beaten and discriminated against. They've been treated like trash. And they didn't know much of anything about the true God. They had probably never left the region of Goshen where they had grown up. Their life had been very tightly constrained. They had little or no hope that it would ever get better. And now, for the first time in their lives, they're getting a taste of freedom. And they're getting a taste of what it means to belong to God and to know God in a personal way. And God's teaching them, this is what it means to belong to me. It doesn't mean that I'll lead you exactly in the way you expect. It doesn't mean that I will take you on the shortest and easiest road. But it does mean that I will never leave you. You see, it would be a long process for the Israelites to get to know God. Because for decades, they had been trained to think and live like slaves. To think and live like people who were treated as if they were worthless, who were told, nobody cares about you, and all that matters is that you do your work, and if you don't do your work, we'll beat you. And God was training them to think and live differently. God was saying to them, now I'm your boss, but I'm a totally different kind of boss than any other boss you've ever experienced. I love you, and I will go with you. And yes, sometimes the road will be hard, but it's not because I am trying to torture you. It's because I know what's best. You see, God knew that the Israelites would be easily spooked, like anybody who had had their past experiences, like anybody who's just beginning to know the true and living God. And so God gave them a visible sign right in front of them that they could see every day that reminded them he is with us. He's going before us. I wonder, do you find it hard to trust God after all that you've been through? Do you feel like the Israelites easily fearful, anxious, spooked? 
the good news is that through Jesus Christ, God has come to dwell among us. And he has sent his Holy Spirit to walk with us and reassure us of his presence. And he's even given us visible signs. We're about to take the Lord's Supper, where Jesus said to his disciples, take bread, take a cup of grape juice, remember that I died on the cross for you. Remember that my body was broken so that you would be made whole. Remember that I have given you this cup to drink because I drank the cup of judgment so that you can drink the cup of celebrating God's salvation. You know, there are a lot of ways that God reassures us of his presence. And many of you have told me about times in your life, sometimes it's the hardest times in life, where God gives us the strongest and most clear and visible and tangible signs of his presence. And many of you have told me about times when you've experienced God's reassurance and you're like, how did he know that? Well, he's just reminding you, I see you, I'm with you, I'm going before you. The promise of Jesus is just as much as the pillar of cloud and fire went before the Israelites, that Jesus has gone before us all the way and his spirit is leading us, guiding us, comforting us, and protecting us no matter where the road leads. God leads us on unexpected detours, but God is always faithful to his word, and he's present with us by his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you were teaching the Israelites through their long journey through the wilderness to trust and obey you knowing that you have delivered, had delivered and saved them. We pray, Lord, that we are, we are fearful, anxious, weary, hurt, that you would come along beside us with your Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Advocate. Would you reassure us would you strengthen us? Would you help us to fix our eyes on you and look for the ways that you are working out your good purposes even in ways that we often don't expect? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.